For those of you who don't know who I am, my name is Royce. I'm one of the elders here at Red Sea. We're bringing the word this morning. I want to begin this morning with a word association game. Okay? Okay, that's a little more exciting than it's going to be, okay? I'm going to say a couple words, and I want somebody or anybody to just say loudly so we are going to hear some things that come to mind when I say that word, okay? Okay, actually names. Okay, ready? George Washington. Carver? <laughs> I didn't think of that one. That one's a good one. Okay, let's try it again. Other than George Washington Carver, who's an awesome guy, nothing. Okay, George Washington. Yeah, we have Dollar Bill. I'm thinking something a little broader, like father of the country or something like that, okay? Patriotism, the founding of our nation. How about Abraham Lincoln? <laughs> Honesty, leader. There you go. If you're from the north, he's a great hero. If you're from the south, you don't like the guy, okay? Here's another one. Sometimes the names aren't always positive. Sometimes they, oh, I don't want to mislead you. How about Adolf Hitler? There's a lot, of, a lot of negativity with a name like Adolf Hitler. Sometimes people have, and, and, and the reason I say that is names carry meanings with them. We have a variety of meanings for those. Um, and, uh, but it presupposes, if you want George Washington or Abraham Lincoln or Adolf Hitler, it presupposes you know something about them if you're going to say, what does that name mean? What, do, what does it carry? What kind of nuances does it carry? You need to know something about that person or the events in their life. And sometimes names personify characteristics. For example, recently I was reading an, an article about uh, General Stonewall Jackson from the Confederacy. And he got his, Stonewall wasn't his real name, it was a nickname. And he was a general in the Confederacy. And when he led his troops, he rode in his horse and he would not hide from enemy fire. He would sit in his horse, stand up where everybody else is behind the wall, everybody else is doing stuff. And he was riding up and down one day during a battle and somebody yelled out, there goes General Jackson like a stone wall. And that's how it stuck. Because it came personified that Jackson was, was fearless. In the heat of battle, he stood and did not move. So names carry with them a lot of meaning. Some words we use, we can say it different ways, and it carries different meanings. For example, what comes to mind when I say 911? Emergency. You need a police, you need an ambulance, you call 911. Now, if I rephrase that, what comes to mind when I say 9-11? Emergency. Okay. There is a the phraseology of that changes based on the historical context. And if you're in somebody who had been in New York or Washington or someplace during that time, it might even carry on slightly different meanings than for those of us who were not there at the time. If I say the word, and you don't need to repeat this because we're not going to go through all the renditions of the word, but Christmas... It carries different meanings for different people. For some people, it's Santa Claus, it's presents, it's decorations. Others, it's time off from work. Some people, it's fond childhood memories. And for other people, it's not so fond childhood memories. Some people would associate it, since we're in a church, with the birth of Christ. And what does it mean when we talk about the birth of Christ? When we talk about um, what comes to mind if we say Christmas is really about the birth of Christ? Will you stand with me as I reread today's text? Today's text is taken out of the Gospel according to Matthew. That's Matthew's account of Jesus' life and ministry. Chapter 1, verse 1. The first verses of the New Testament. And I'll be reading verse 1, and then we'll be jumping for the, to the first half of verse 18. Hear the word of the Lord for us today. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you, Lord, for your grace and mercy that are new each and every day.
kind into a season. We are in a season of Advent, of celebration Christmas, the birth of Jesus, birth of the Christ, the birth of the son of David, the birth of the son of Abraham. Lord, we pray that we will understand at least a little bit more today what it means for this person to be born. He was born a long time ago, but Lord, he is still alive today. We worship on this day because it's the day of resurrection. Sunday is the day that we celebrate the resurrected Christ each and every week. We thank you for that reminder. We thank you for the rhythm of that reminder. We especially thank you for the provision of Christ. Lord, as we go tonight, today, I pray that you would just open our minds and our hearts, that your Holy Spirit just remind us of your love, your passion, your grace, your mercy, but especially, Lord, that the anticipated promises that you have in your word are fulfilled in Christ, and those, those are for us to have. We thank you again for this day, and we pray in your precious and glorious name. Amen. So you may be seated. Matthew wrote, the disciple Matthew wrote an account, probably late, um, later some other books of the Bible. It was written to an audience, probably of Jewish Christians. Uh, we know this because of the, the amount of time he spends talking about the Old Testament and the fulfillments of it. It's probably written sometime before 70 A.D. He, Jesus predicts the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem, which we know by history happened in 70 A.D., but the book doesn't record that it happened, so we assume it was before then. But it probably was written late, late in the Christian, as Christians were already forming, and Matthew, who is one of the disciples, wanted people to be clear and understand the life and ministry of Jesus. But as he begins his gospel with these lines, it's just a short line, it's like a summary statement, but they're jam-packed full of meaning. The words he used, each and every one of them, was packed. In fact, I think as the original readers would have read this, they would have been a little startled when they, when they start, read his book for the first time because he's, he, these are loaded statements. And we're going to unpack some of them today. He begins in there, this is the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. The book of the genealogy, he's just saying, this is, he's talking about the beginning part, the first two chapters of his book. It's a record of the genealogy. It's a record of origins of somebody he's going to talk about, which we know is Jesus. He says, I'm going to tell you something about a very important person, and what's really important is you understand where he came from. Before we can talk about who he is and what he's doing now, you need to understand where he came from. And this is very important to the Jewish people. And the word Genesis, this is the book of the genealogy, is where you get the word Genesis from, beginnings. And it's also used in verse 18, when it talks about now the birth of Jesus, literally now the genesis of Jesus happened in this way. So Matthew is combining those two. And he says it's the book of Jesus. Now this is a name we, we throw around, we use a lot. But sometimes we use it and we don't really understand what the name means. The name has meaning, it was very significant. The name Jesus is the Greek derivation of the Hebrew name Joshua or derivations of the name Joshua. And it means literally, Yahweh is salvation, or in our vernacular, God is salvation. So Jesus' very name is that God is salvation. In fact, in Matthew, a little later in this same chapter, Matthew accounts when the, um, an angel came to Joseph to tell Joseph that Mary's going to have a child. And the angel says, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife. For that which was conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. His very name, the, the angel said, you don't, get, you, get, you don't get to pick this one, Joseph. I'm telling you what his name is. His name is Jesus because he's the Savior. But then he also adds Christ, of Jesus Christ. Now, Christ, contrary to popular opinion, is not his last name. If you looked in a phone book back then, you wouldn't look underseas to find Jesus. Okay? It, Christ is a title. It is a title that, that it means, it's, again, it's a Greek word that is transliteration of, a, of the Hebrew word Messiah, or anointed one. He is the anointed one. He is the Messiah. It's very similar to Savior, but it carries a broader meaning. 
prophets, priests, and kings were anointed with special roles. And he is saying this one, this one is the prophet, priest, and king together. He is the anointed one. He's one person representing the people of God and establishing God's reign over everything. So those names themselves, right out the chute, were loaded terms for these people. They should be loaded terms for us also. And then he goes and he says, this is the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. And then he uses two phrases that we're not as familiar with. The son of David, the son of Abraham. Now what does he mean by these terms? We're going to take a little bit this morning to go through these terms. Where did he get the name son of David and son of Abraham? I'm going to refer to some scripture verses, and you can um, write them down. We're not going to pull them up the screen. You don't need to flip through them. We're not going to be there long enough for you to, to flip through them. But the first one, if you want to study out the understanding of the son of David, the primary place you would go is 2 Samuel chapter 7. 2 Samuel chapter 7. And in that time, David has become, this is about a, an incident. It's a, a God makes a covenant with the king David. Many of us are familiar with David. You know, David and Goliath, David and the sheep, all that, that, that David. Well, he becomes a king. After many years of running, there's a whole, whole storyline behind this. The, many years of running, he becomes king. And there's relative peace in the land. So he's in his palace. He's in his house. And he says, and it occurs to him. Let me, let me back up a little bit. In, in the history of Israel... After people went to Israel, they came out of, God delivered them off out of Egypt. He had them make something called the tabernacle. If you read the New Testament, Exodus, it talks about how they built this. Basically, it's a tent. It's a tent within a tent. And in, in there, they put the sacred items of Israel. And in the tabernacle was God says, that's where my presence is going to be. I'm the creator of the whole universe, but just so you know, so you have some place to identify with my presence, I'm going to be in the tabernacle. So God spoke to him in the tabernacle. That's their holy place. That was their portable temple, if you will. Okay, back to the story. David is, becomes king, and he says to himself, I'm living in a house of cedar. I'm living in the palace, and yet God lives in a tent outside the city. And it's not even a good-looking tent as that. And he said, I, I don't think this is right. So he tells Nathan the prophet, I think I'm going to build God a house. And Nathan says... Get her done. He didn't really say that, but that's what, he, that, that's what he meant. He said, go for it. Well, that night, God comes to Nathan and says, uh, I need to talk to you because you need to talk to David. And um, what God says is to Nathan, now, this is what I want you to tell. I want you to go tell David, would you really build me a house to live in? Now, the house David wants to build is what we would know as a temple a special place to go worship, and God's presence resides. If it can reside in a tent, it can reside in a house. It can reside in a building. And he said, and then, um, and so God says, do you, do you, Nathan, tell David, do you really want to build me a house? He says, I, I don't live in a house. He said, of all the years that we have been traveling in history, all the hundreds of years back to the history of your people, have I ever said, why doesn't somebody build me a house? He's never said that. And that's what, that's what God says to Nathan. You think maybe there's a reason why I never said, build me a house? Because I don't live in a house. You can't contain me in a house. In fact, he goes on and says, um, I, and he goes on and he says, I want you to tell David that I have been with him all the time he's been alive. Ever since I called him, when I took him from the pasture, when he was following sheep, I was with him. I find that interesting. It wasn't when David was leading the sheep as a shepherd. He was following the sheep. And God said, I was with him. I was with him his whole life. I'm the one who made him king. I was with him the whole time. My presence is with David. And then, it, and then in this time, David goes, I mean, God goes through a whole bunch of I wills. I will do this, I will do this, I will do this, I will do this. I will make for you a great nation. Now he's saying, Nathan, tell this to David. I will make you a great nation. You will be a great one among the earth. I will appoint a place for my people of Israel and plant them. I will give you rest from your enemies. I will raise up, up your offspring after you who will come from your body. I will establish your kingdom. He says, I will establish the throne of your kingdom forever. And then he says, David, I will build you a house. God says, David, I will build you a house. 
And then he goes on and says, okay, David, I'll tell you what. You can build me a house. You won't build it because you're a violent man, but your son will build it for me. And then God promises him. He says, and he will build a house, and I will establish your throne, your house, David, forever. And then he goes on, and your house, David, and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. And then we're told that Nathan left and went and gave these words to David. Now understand what happened here. David, with good, sincere heart, said, I live in a palace of cedar. It's not fair that God lives in a tent, so I'm going to build him a house. God says, I don't live in a house, but I'll tell you what I'm going to do, David. I'm going to build you a house. There's a play on words here, obviously, of house, house, house. House, a palace. House, a temple. House, a dynasty. And God says, I don't need bricks and mortar, but what I'm going to do for you, David, you can go ahead and build that building, but I'm going to make you a dynasty. Not only that, it's going to be an eternal dynasty. Its rule will never end. And then after this, we're not going to look at it, David prays a prayer of just awesome, how awesome and gracious God is. And God says, you think I'm gracious by just the things I've done now? You haven't seen how gracious I am to you. Later in the the, the birth of Jesus, the angel Gabriel comes to, to Mary, and he announces the birth of Jesus. And he says, greetings, O favored one, of the, the Lord is with you. Similar language as he said to David. But she was troubled she was, she was, from what the, the angel said. And the angel said, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and he shall be called his name, you, and you will call his name Jesus. He will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High. The, the Lord God will give him Give to him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign forever in the house of Jacob, forever, and his kingdom there will be no end. So the son of David that Matthew starts off with is talking about this eternal dynasty, this eternal kingdom, this one true king who's coming. Jesus is that man. Later in in, in, in Acts, uh, Peter is giving his famous sermon in the second chapter of Acts. And he's talking to the Jewish audience and all the worshipers of the Jews. And one of the main parts of his sermon is he says to them, just Jesus, he's talked about the life of Jesus, says, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite and plan and foreknowledge of God. And God has raised him up. So he's saying God had a plan with Jesus. And before anything ever happened, God had this plan. Then he goes down and says, Peter says, Brothers, I say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. But being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him, David, that he would set one on his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke of the resurrection of Christ. And then Peter goes on about the risen Lord. Jesus isn't just born the king. Jesus' death and resurrection establishes him as the eternal king. And Jesus is a fulfillment of the son of David. In this phrase, uh, when Matthew said, the book of genealogy of Jesus, the son of David, and the son of Abraham, the second one is the son of Abraham. I want to leave the son of David now and move on to the son of Abraham. Son of Abraham. Now, first of all, I want to note two things, just to catch up. In this, te- uh, we're going to read out of Genesis, and in the, these texts of Genesis, his name is Abram. Abram starts, he starts off with Abram, and then later God renames him Abraham. So if you hear Abram and Abraham, they're the same guy. I, I, I might go back and forth. So if you hear me say Abram, Abraham, it's the same guy, okay? Secondly, you need to know, if you're not familiar with the storyline of the whole Bible, there's Jesus, okay, and then hundreds of years earlier was David, but hundreds of years before him was Abraham, or Abram. So, so Matthew is going backwards, and then later in the, his same chapter, he begins the genealogy to Abraham and goes forwards. But right now he's saying he's, he's the Christ now, he's the son of David, he's the eternal king. He, more than that, he's the son of Abraham. So he's going back into history to say this. So in Genesis 15, in Genesis 15, we have the account of God's covenant with Abram. And it's broken into two scenes. Two scenes. There are two events put together. Whether they happen at the exact same time, we don't know. 
but they probably happened in close proximity of time to each other. In the first, in Genesis 15, in the first one, in the first scene, you'll see this repetition of, these, of the ideas. So I'm going to say the, what it is and then read the verse for you. For, first of all, what it is is Abram is uh, with God, and God promises a blessing to him. And God's presence was going to go with him. So he says this in, first, in the first verse. Uh, um, after, these things, uh, after these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward is very great. God begins by saying, I, myself, am your shield. My presence is with you. I will protect you. I will do the things I say, and your reward, what you're going to get, is going to be great. But then we read in the next verse something interesting. Abram doubts God. Abram says, in verse 2, it says, But Abram said, O Lord, God, what will you give me? For I continue to be childless. And the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you, you have given me no offspring. And, remembered, and, um, and the member of my household will be my heir. Basically, God's saying, he's saying, I'm going to bless you. And David's saying, I mean, Abram's saying, how can you bless me if I don't have a son? If my line ends with me, and he in this, at this time is a very old man. How, how does it, how it happen? And, and, and David is, I mean, sorry. Abram is a little, little pushy here. You, God, have not given me an offspring. A little blame here. And then, so God says, I want to demonstrate to you my ability and my reliability to you, Abram. Get out, come on out of the tent. So he takes Abraham out of the tent. He goes, I want you to look up at the sky. What do you see? What do you see when you look up at the sky? Stars, okay? Stars. Oh, it's at night. Stars, okay? Um, he said, and he says, um, God says, um, this man will not be your heir. You will have a son. I want you to look into heaven and number the stars if you really can number them. Go ahead. Go ahead, Abram. Count the stars. You can't count the stars. But then he goes on and says, Abram, so shall your offspring be. You want one son? I'm telling you, the, the, your offspring will be as numerous as the stars in the sky. Stars is a great uh, object lesson for many ways. One is, it's, it's everywhere. We look at the same stars that Abram does. You ever been out to the night sky, uh, went away from a city when it's really dark? Okay, this is pre-city time, or pre-electricity time, obviously. So it was dark at night, and the sky is very bright when the stars are, stars are shining. And it's, a, it's probably a very awesome thing for him to look at. It's very impressive. And he says, Abram, those are going to be your, your people. And God is also saying, I think he wants him to have an object lesson that every single night, Abram can look up and say, I remember what God said. We too can look at the same stars and every night and say, I can remember what God said. I want one son, he's going to give me a multitude of family. And then we're told in verse 6, and, he, and, they, and Abram believed the Lord, and, and, and God counted to Abram, counted to him as righteousness. Abram doubted. God said, look at the stars. He believed God, and God said, because of your faith in what I'm going to do, I count it to you as righteousness. It's not because of anything you've done, but because of your faith in what I'm going to do, that's what you get. Then he goes on, and he go, then it goes to the second scene. A second scene. And a very similar order of things to happen. There's a promised blessing. God says, Abram, um, I'm the Lord who brought you out of Ur of Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. Now, we need to back up a little bit. What does he mean? Well, this is Genesis 15. In Genesis 12 is what we call the call of Abraham. A um, Abram. Abram is in the Ur of Chaldeans, probably someplace near the... Um, the body of water there, Persian Gulf, and near Kuwait. It's not near Israel. He's a long way away. Okay? And God shows up and says to him, and in Genesis 12, he says, you know what? I want you to go away from this place. God shows up and says to Abram, I want you to go. I want you to leave your country. I want you to leave your town. I want you to leave your family. I want you to take what you can carry, 
and I want you to go, and I'm not telling you where you're going yet. And, and then we're told in Genesis 12, that Abram got up and left his home and followed God. So that's what he's referring to. God's reminded Abram of this text. He says to him, I'm the Lord who brought you out of Ur to give you this land to possess. Remember that land I promised way back when? This is it. And then again, we hear that Abram doubted. He doubted God again. He says in verse 8, but, but he, Abram said, O Lord, how am I to know that I shall possess it? How am I to know that I'll possess it? Have you ever struggled with some uncertainties? Let's just pause here for a second. Have you ever struggled? God has promises in his word and to us. Have you ever struggled with, how can I know for sure that this is going to happen? How can I know that you, God, will keep your promises? How, God, can I know that you really love us or love me enough to do what you say you're going to do? Have you ever heard the saying, if it seems too good to be true, it probably is. When it comes to people, that's a smart saying. Not when it comes to God. We have a distrust I think when we hear that something is too good to be true, we don't trust it. And when God gives us promises, you know what? They're too good to be true. And we have inside us doubt and fear and a distrust. God, are you really going to do that? And that's what Abram has. He doubted that God was really going to do what he said he was going to do. Now, before we get to God's answer, we need to, we need to, I need to explain something to you. In the day, that day, just like today, they had covenants. They called them covenants, and they had the process called cutting a covenant. It was making an agreement. It was making a treaty. It was making a contract. Think of that kind of phraseology. And what they would do, and, and, and this is a generality, is that there would be a big king, a strong king. There's fancy words for him, suzerain and vassal and all this kind of stuff. Let's just keep it simple, Okay. Big king, little king, okay? Well, the big king would establish his kingdom, and it'd probably, in many cases, it'd be broken up into little kingdoms, little areas of responsibility, and he'd assign little kings, little people of authority, over those little areas. Or maybe he would conquer an area and say, okay, you can still be king, but you've got to do what I say. And so they would make this agreement, and the little kings were united under the big king. And the little kings would pay taxes, and their people would pay taxes to the big king. But also, when the big king went to war, he expected all the little kings to throw in with him and to go with him. Okay? But at the same time, if one of the little kings was attacked by a neighbor or some, one of the other little kings, the big king would, says, I'll step in and I'll, I'll be behind you. So if you go to war, you'll have me as the big king with you. Okay? So that's what they, so they make a covenant. They make an agreement to do this. Well, when they did this covenant, they would have this big public ceremony. They didn't just sign a couple pieces of parchments in secret and take them off. No, this was a big deal. And they would make it, and they would go to usually the little king's place, and they would set up this, this big ceremony. All the officials and the people would come out. And they would take these, they'd get a bunch of animals. We're not going to go into all the different animals. They'd get a bunch of animals, and they would cut them up in half. They just whack away at them and cut them in half, and then they would put them in two rows. So it's just a bloody mess. Okay, you visualizing this with me? Okay? And they'd whack them in half. Then everybody gathered around, and they would recite what the agreement was. And then the little king, representing his people, would walk through the pieces. You can hear the squishing of the blood and guts. He'd walk through the pieces. And he would say, and he would swear the oath to the big king, and he would say, may this happen to me and my people if we don't keep this agreement. Okay? You don't forget those agreements, do you? Okay? It's not a little thing to swear an oath like that. You don't foreclose on those. Now, let's go back to Abram. 
Abram, God says, I'm going to give you this land. I'm going to promise. I told you all the things before I'm going to do for you. I'm going to make you a blessing to the nations. Um, because of you, the whole world is going to be blessed, Abram, and the call to Abram. And now, and then he says, Abram, and then and Abram says, God, how can I know? So God says, this is where he demonstrates his ability and reliability. He tells Abram, I want you to go, and then he lists a bunch of animals. He says, Abram, go get the animals. And Abram gets the animals. And we're told a little later in verse 10 that he brought the animals here, and he cut them in half, and he laid them each half over against each other. He made the two rows. And then we're a little odd phrase there. It says in, in verse 11, And then the birds of the prey came down from the carcasses, and Abraham drove, Abram drove them away. I think the reason that is there is for two reasons. One of all, it's a bloody mess. There's guts all over the place. And, it, and I think it was sitting there for quite a while. God didn't just show up right that one moment. He cut him, and Abram's like, waiting, waiting, waiting. And it's starting to rot. It's starting to stink. And the, the animals, the birds, vultures start coming to take the animals. He has to shoo them away. I think it's because Abraham's expecting, I've got to walk through these pieces, but I need kind of God to be here. Okay, for this to be official, I'm waiting and I'm waiting. And he waits. And then evening falls. And it says, the sun went down and a deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon Abram. What happened is, God incapacitates Abram. He knocks him out. He pushes him to the side. Sits him there. He's, a, he's aware of what's going on, but he cannot move. And Abram, the reason is, God is saying, Abram, you contribute nothing to this agreement. And then, um, so God reiterates his promise. Now, I'm not going to reiterate the whole thing. He goes, God, know for certain that your offspring are going to bless the world, and this is what's going to happen. Okay. And then we're told in verse 17, when the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a, a smoking fire and a pot and a flaming torch passed between the pieces. What's a smoking pot and a flaming torch? Well, earlier in the Bible and throughout the Bible, those are symbolic of the presence of God. The nation of Israel for 40 years in the desert was led by a pillar of fire and a pillar of smoke. They understood what that meant. Moses, reader, Moses wrote Genesis. His readers understood. Fire and smoke together means the presence of God. So what is he saying? The presence of God walked through those pieces. And it says that the Lord God made a covenant with Abraham saying, To your offspring I will give this land and fulfill my promise. And then he goes through and gives some specifics about the land. Now, if you noticed, if you were paying attention, not to imply that you weren't, but if you paid attention, you notice there's a discrepancy. There's a discrepancy between what I told you about how they cut covenants and what happened with Abram. Something doesn't line up. I told you that routinely it was the weak king who swore an oath to the strong king. That makes sense, doesn't it? Sure it does. Now, I'm going to go out on a limb here, but I'm going, to, I'm going to guess that the strong king in this story is God, and the weak one is Abram. Can we have a general consensus with that? I think it's safe to say God's a bit stronger than Abram. But, even though Abram was the weak king, and, I, and we are confident he assumed that he was going to be walking through the pieces, that's why he was waiting and shooing the animals away, and God had to knock him out, who walked through the pieces of the animals? God did. Why? Why the reversal of roles? God swore an oath. God passed through those pieces. And he said, may this happen to me if I don't keep my word. Really? You really think that would happen to God? Do you really think God would allow himself to be cut in half 
to keep his word? Really? Is this a little hyperbole? God was saying to Abraham, if I have to die to make this happen, I will. Here's a twist of prophetic irony. God did die to make that happen. Didn't he? In the book of Romans, Paul goes at length using Abram as an example of a man of faith. And Paul says, as he's describing Abram, uh, Abraham as a man of faith, the same guy, Abram, he says, this is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and a guarantee for all, his off- all of Abraham's offspring, it comes by faith. To the one who shares the faith of Abraham, and he goes on and explains that um, it is written, I have made you a father of many nations, is what God said he'd do to the call of Abraham. And in the presence of God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that are not exist. And in a hope he believed against all hope. And then he goes on and says, No, do, no distrust made, him, made Abraham waver concerning the promise of God. No distrust. We did see he struggled. Ultimately, there's no distrust. In fact, he goes on, Paul says, And he, Abraham, grew strong in his faith. Abraham grew strong in his faith. That implies that he had a little bit of faith, and he got a little more faith, and a little more faith, and he grew stronger and stronger and stronger in the faith of God. In the faith of God. As he gave God the glory. Fully convinced, Abram became fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but also for ours. It will be counted to us who believe in him, Christ, in God, who raised him from the dead, Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. In other words, God says the people who receive the blessing of Abraham are those people who have faith because I did cut myself in half. I set my son to die, to shed his blood, to establish the eternal covenant for your sakes, for my sakes. Those people who believe that inherit, receive, are part of that covenant with Abraham. Remember Abraham's struggle, Abram's struggle? How can I know? We do struggle with the same questions. Whether you're a Christian or not a Christian, whether you claim to be a follower of Christ or not, when it comes to our walk with God or thinking about God, how do we know for sure things are going to happen? How do we really trust that God will do what he says he's going to do? How do we know God's going to do what he promised? How do we know that God really loves us? Well, God says, just like he did with Abraham, with the pieces, walking through the pieces, and said, may this happen to me. It did happen to him. And, it, and Paul says in Romans that while we were still weak, while we were still little kings, Christ died for the ungodly. And God demonstrates his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we still deserved that, he sets us aside and says, incapacitates us and says, you can't do anything to get it. I will take care of the whole thing. And he cuts into pieces. In Romans, later in Romans, Paul says, Who can separate us from the love of God? Who can separate us from the love of God? You struggle with the love of God, Paul's saying? You struggle with how much he loves you? In Romans 8, he he unpacks that. And he talks about Christ, the one who died. More than that, the one who raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, tribulation, or stress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither life, nor death, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor the things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation are able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. How did God express his love to us in Christ Jesus our Lord? By cutting himself in half on our behalf. God knows we doubt. God knows that 
He needs to remind us of his grace, his mercy, his promises, his provisions. We have two reminders in this. One is the stars in the sky. The other one we as Christians have is the Lord's Supper, communion. God, Jesus established this, this meal uh, during the Passover meal to break the bread. This is my body broken for you. He rips it in half. Sounds like a body ripped in half. And this is my, the cup, the new covenant of my blood spilt for you. Sounds like a broken, bloody mess that he's symbolizing because that's what his body symbolizes. And then he said, do this whenever you get together and pr- because you proclaim my death until I come. We, God knows we need a reminder. He knows we lose. He knows we doubt. He knows we struggle. And because of that, one of the reasons he has established the meal of the Lord's Supper, which we take every week, is to remind us of the faithfulness of God, the provision of God in Christ Jesus, his death, his resurrection, his coming again. To Abram, God said, may I die a horrible death if I don't keep my word to you. To us, Jesus says, who is God, I did die a horrible death. I will keep my word. I have kept my word. The blessings that I promised you have already been secured by my death. The payment's already been paid. In Matthew, it's interesting that Matthew begins his gospel with the words, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And he says, and he begins his book by basically saying to the readers, I'm going to tell you a story, a life and a ministry about a guy, a man. It's it's the man who God saves. It's the God who saves. The anointed one. The eternal king. The promised blessing of Abraham. This is the guy I'm talking about. It's also interesting, and then he goes on and explains that. What's also interesting is the way Matthew ends his book. Matthew ends his book in Matthew 28 with what we know as the Great Commission. The Great Commission. And in the Great Commission, I'm going to read it to you and make some comments. He says in Matthew 28, 16 through 20, he says, Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain which Jesus had directed them, and when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Isn't that amazing? Isn't it amazing that Matthew is just perfectly honest with us in his book. He was there. He's one of those 11 guys. He shows up. They're talking to the resurrected Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one, the son of David, the son of Abraham. He knows all this. And yet they go, and they're with the resurrected Christ, and they worship. But some, maybe even Matthew himself, doubted. I appreciate Matthew's honesty there. He could have glossed over that. He didn't have to include that. It's not, it's not you know, Dale Carnegie, How to Win Friends and Influence People is not to tell him all about the problems. But he's honest. We doubt. We struggle, even with a resurrected Christ. Just like Abram. Just like Abram said, God, you did all this, but how can I know? And the disciples are standing there with Jesus, the resurrected Christ, and say, you know what, this is awesome, but how can I know? And then he goes on, and Jesus came to them and said, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me, in verse 18. That should echo with them as he is the eternal king of the son of David, the David dynasty. Then he goes on and says, verse 19, go therefore, go therefore. I'm the eternal king, now I want you to go do something. Going is what he told Abram to do in the land of Ur. Abram, I got something for you to do. Go. Abram did. We are too. And make disciples of all nations. We're to make disciples of all ethnos. These are not geopolitical. Don't think of countries. Think of ethnic groups. Go make disciples of all ethnic groups of people. Just like God told Abram in in his call in Genesis 12, and you, all the families of the earth, will be blessed. And then he goes on, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the very end of the age. 
Just like in Genesis, the beginning of the covenant, God comes to Abraham and says, Fear not. I am your shield. God's presence is promised with us. Jesus promised his presence as we go forward. Before I finish up, I just want to give a word of encouragement to people. As I was working through this this week and thinking about this, there is a lot in the Bible as we read the Bible that's there. There's a lot, and this, this is like no doubt, Royce. Okay, there's a lot in the Bible. That's, thank you. Um, one sentence like this is jam-packed full of information, full of words. The opening line of the New Testament is just full of biblical story. And you don't have to be a Bible scholar reading Greek and Hebrew to know these things. But you do need to know your Bible. To the, to the people who originally wrote, read Matthew's Gospel, all those words would have clicked in their head because they were very well steeped in the Old Testament. And I would encourage you, if you're not familiar with the Bible, to make it an, a, a goal, an objective, to become familiar with it. It will drastically increase the value, not only of reading the Bible, but the meanings of things as you go. You can't read the New Testament completely ignorant of the Old Testament. We need to understand it. We tend to err towards reading the New Testament because that's what about Jesus and that's about the early church. That's great. It's awesome stuff. But it's one-third of the whole. And the Bible we have here is really, we believe, one book. One book. Yes, it's made of 66 little books. It's one story. It's the story of God. It starts at the beginning in Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And it ends with God creating the new heavens and the new earth. And all the pieces that go through it progress and they build on each other. It's one continuous story. I would encourage you, if you're not familiar with that story, to go ahead and just get the discipline read. You've got, e- you got translations that are easy to read. And we lose a lot of the meaning of this because we don't, like I've already said this, you don't, we don't read those things. And again, you don't need to be a Bible scholar, but you do need to spend some time reading it. If you had, been, had a cursory knowledge of the Old Testament, you would have picked up, and I'm not saying you don't, so don't, don't take it the wrong way, you would have picked up on, oh, son of David, I know that. Son of Abraham, I know that. Those, that one line about Christmas, about the birth of Christ, would have had a lot more wallop if you're not familiar with it. I recommend two things, Okay. I recommend you get a Bible with no study notes in it. I use this one for my personal reading. No study notes. It's also large print for us older folks. <clears throat> I spend my time reading my Bible like that because I don't want to be influenced by the notes. I just want to read. Me and God. Let's talk. Then I also have this, <coughs> this one. Minuscule print. Okay. I literally use a magnifying glass to read this. But it is jam-packed with study notes and maps and articles and information. It's a library. There's more information contained here than for 2,000 years pastors and scholars had in their hands. It is actually a phenomenal research. You can go online and use it online. They have study articles and they have notes. It is just an awesome. It's the ESV, English Standard Version, Study Bible. Forty bucks. I don't know what it costs now. Probably even less now. Forty bucks. I, no, I don't get a commission from the sales, okay? I wish I did. They even have here the price of the book itself, besides being a Bible, okay? There's an article, The History of Salvation in the Old Testament, Preparing the Way for Christ, in the back. What they do is they go through the whole Old Testament, and they go through all the verses, not every single, literally everyone, but all the major verses of the Old Testament, and they say, well, this is what it means, and this is what it, how it points to Jesus Christ. It is an awesome tool. And if you were reading your Bible and got to Matthew 1.1 and opened it up and said, Son of David, Son of Abraham, what's that? You turn, you find some math references in the study notes to Genesis 15. You look up here, it'll tell you how it points to Christ. Genesis 12, how it points to Christ. Second, Second Samuel 7, how it points to Christ. Okay? I just really want to stress that, and this is, you know, this is New Year's resolution time. This is Christmas gift buying time. Okay? If you don't, want, you don't want to do this, that's fine. We, we give away Bibles. In the back connect booth, they're either white covers or black covers. If you don't have a Bible, take a Bible. That's what they're there for. This is an ESV, just a simple Bible. And in the front, 
It has, oh, an article, How to Read My Bible. And it gives you some suggestions. I would highly recommend that you pick one up and make the discipline of reading. Um, also, in the ESV Study Bible, they have how you can read through the Bible in a year, a little checklist thing, I think. Okay, that's my little sales pitch for reading the Bible, okay? It is tremendous, tremendous value to do that. Matthew said, in the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And then later he says, now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. This Christmas, I hope that the, the, when you think about the birth of Jesus Christ in this way, it carries with it a lot of impact of the mercy and promises of God and his already fulfilling that. The anticipated fulfillment of Christ has already come, has already secured those things. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your grace and mercy. I thank you, Lord, that you are Jesus. Yahweh is salvation. I thank you that you are the Christ, the anointed one. I thank you that you are the son of David, the eternal king. I thank you, Lord, that you are the son of Abraham the promise of the blessings. Lord, I pray that you would allow us to be a people in in midst of our doubt and fear, would look to the death of Christ in new ways. We would not stumble over the scandal of someone dying for our sins. We would not stumble over even the familiarity of Jesus might have for us. But Lord, this season, this week, there would be a freshness, a newness to our understanding of who you are. Lord, there are people here who do struggle and doubt about you. Do you really love them? Do you really care? I pray, Lord, that you will work in our heart and draw them closer to yourself. I pray, Lord, that you will make yourself known to them in ways that they haven't even thought of yet. Lord, there are people here who are struggling with sin, and because of that sin, feel they cannot get right with God. They can't get past the guilt or the shame that they feel. Lord, I pray that they will see the cross and say that guilt and shame has been taken care of by Christ. There is no guilt and shame for those who are in Christ Jesus. Lord... Just like Abraham doubted, but he believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness, I pray that those who struggle with sin would also believe and understand that when you look at them, you see righteousness. Lord, I pray for those who struggle with fear and anxiety, that, Lord, that they would not get past the love of Christ, that, Lord, that they would know it, and again, in new and fresh ways. As we come to the table, Lord, I pray that your spirit would move in a powerful way. We thank you for this day. We thank you, Lord, that you are the Lord. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.